Corinthians chapter 10. In the New Testament this morning, currently going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And this morning's title is Spiritual Warfare. How to fight spiritual warfare. Because we are, as Christians, in a spiritual warfare. And this world is the battlefield. To the Christian, it's enemy territory. And many times Christians go out into the world as if it was a playground. And they get beat up. And they don't understand why. Because we have spiritual weapons to use. We have spiritual armor to use. And it's many times like a soldier who is trained for battle. He's got the equipment he needs to hopefully keep himself alive. And God's given us the same kind of equipment and hope when we go outside the doors of our house in the morning into the world. But how foolish for a soldier to go to battle without his armor. He wouldn't even think about it. His offensive and defensive weapons. But yet Christians will go out each day without their weapons, their offensive weapons, and defensive weapons. And when they get beat up, when they get attacked and wounded, they don't understand why. In our study this morning, here we come, we're, we come to a major turning point in this letter. It's another kind of abrupt turn. Last week he spoke, or last two weeks he spoke about giving. In the first seven verses, he spoke about the comfort that God gave in the different areas of life. Then he abruptly went to giving, and now he kind of abruptly goes back to dealing with the critics that were criticizing Paul for who he was. In the previous letters, again, Paul talked about his calling. He talked about defending his motives and his message. He's talked about his converts, those that he led to the Lord. And he praises them for their faithful partnership and financial uh, partnership in supporting the gospel. Now here, in chapter 10, he suddenly and scornfully turns on his critics. And, And he speaks about them through the rest of the chapter. Maybe Titus had been a little too enthusiastic and overjoyed about the Corinthians. And maybe he wanted to give Paul the good news first. Then, when he saw Paul's joy, he thought, Oh man, I'm going to wait to tell Paul uh, the the not-so-good news. But he had to tell him. There was a darker side to the Corinthians' condition. And maybe now he just had to tell him. And maybe Paul, being too wise a man and knowing human nature, he couldn't be fooled. And he suspected something. And he had time to think about it. The news that Titus brought was just too good to be true. And you've heard the saying, if it's too good to be true, it usually is. And surely not all of Paul's critics had been so quickly won over and easily persuaded to give up their legalism and their envy to leaders. So one way or another, the full story came out. Paul still had enemies at Corinth. 
He was still being personally attacked by some people as being flaky, as being fearful. Mean remarks were still floating around about his personal appearance and his lack of eloquence. And some even said that Paul was crazy. Most of them were on Paul's side. And Titus had spoken well of them. But there was still some small group of people that remained stubborn and unbroken. And so what does Paul do? He does some more writing. He wasn't through yet. And Paul defends himself in three areas. First, he dealt with his personal appearance. So let's begin in chapter 10 now with verse 1. And Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. So Paul is now writing to the Corinthians. And he says, look, I appeal to you. Look, I, I, I ask you. I'm asking you with gentleness and with the kindness of Christ. He says, though I realize you think I'm timid in person, okay, and bold only when I write to you when I'm far away. So he starts off slowly and easy, slow and easy, trying to calm the situation. He points them to the person of Christ, and that's always who we should point people to, Jesus Christ, the one who as a man among men, was meek and gentle. Jesus referred to himself as being meek in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Meekness is not weakness. In this world, people think that meekness is weakness, that you have to be assertive and, and, and just, you know, you just got to make yourself known out there. Step on toes if you must. But meekness is not weakness. In Scripture, it is a strength. It is a godly strength. It's not a natural temperament. It's an inner work of grace that allows a person to accept God's will with self-control. Because sometimes accepting God's will, it's hard. And we're not happy with it. But with the help of God and the Holy Spirit, we accept it in, with control, self-control. Jesus showed his meekness when he was confronted by his enemies. And when he was standing trial by, uh, before Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. Now, Jesus, he could have called down 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. Yet he responded to his enemies with gracious silence and quiet authority. That's power. It's easy to lose your temper. It's easier to say what you want to say and get it off of your chest. It's easy to spout stuff off. But man, it takes the grace of God to remain silent and quiet and be under control. All of, the, all of the critics' lies and all of their misrepresentations and all of their threats and all of their insinuations and harassments against Paul didn't irritate him at all. The Corinthians should have thought about that. Then there was the gentleness of Jesus. It means to be fair or moderate. And the word gentleness has been rendered as sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. Meekness has to do with a mental attitude. Gen gentleness has to do with fairness and impartiality, the ability to see the other person's point of view. It suggests kindness. Jesus was truly gentle. And all of the different variations of the word were at home in Jesus' heart. The Corinthians should think about that. Now, in judging Paul or anybody else, they should adopt, okay, these critics... 
that were, you know, criticizing Paul, they should adopt the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus, the sweetest, kindest of men. As for Paul, he always tried to be like Jesus. He not only tries to calm them, that is his critics, by his quiet influence and approach and by pointing them to the Lord Jesus, but he quotes them. He quotes the very words of his critics. He tells them, look, he says, when I was with you, you were the ones who said I was lowly and that when I was away from you, I was bold. Paul was lowly or humble. The kind of man who wouldn't hurt a fly or who keeps a low profile. So Paul's critics at Corinth didn't think much of Paul. As a matter of fact, they said, you know, he doesn't act tough when he's here. You know, when he's around us, when he's in front of us, Paul doesn't act tough. That was an insult suggesting that he was a coward. And there, was a, 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 there wasn't a braver man or a braver missionary than the Apostle Paul. No matter what the odds were against Paul, he was true to his convictions. He was true to his call. Danger nor the threat of death could stop Paul. Paul was not afraid of officials. He wasn't afraid of murderers. And when he was persecuted in the city, uh, in city after city in Galatia, on his first missionary journey, even to the point of being stoned and left for dead, he went back there a few weeks later to those same cities to encourage the infant churches. The Corinthians should remember that when Paul got to Corinth the first time, his back was probably still sore from the beatings he received at Philippi. Paul definitely was not afraid of his critics at Corinth. He was just as patient and long-suffering. But they better not misjudge Paul. Now, suddenly, Paul looks and shows his courage in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, notice against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He says, hey, don't forget I'm coming in person to see you. He says, so I'm begging you now so that that when I get there, I won't have to be bold with those who think I'm acting out of my flesh. So you can imagine that what his critics said after Paul said this. He said, I'm warning you now. I'm coming down, and I don't want to have to be bold when I see you. They're probably saying, here he goes again. Talking that smack, talking that big talk. He says he's coming. He's going to be bold. You know, we'll believe it when he comes, and he's standing right there in front of us. But they could say whatever they want. Because Paul knew he was led by the Holy Spirit. So he warns them, hey, I'm coming to Corinth, and you better watch out. He says, don't make me prove to you how bold I can be. But that boldness is in the authority and the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Not his flesh, he's saying. I'm not, I'm not coming in and throwing my weight around and, and, and showing you how tough I am. I'm coming in the authority of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't the least bit afraid of those critics. He wasn't the least bit of, afraid of their leaders or their credentials, so-called credentials. Paul's credentials didn't come from man. They came from God. Paul was coming to Corinth not in the flesh. 
He was coming armed with apostolic authority and the power of the Holy Spirit given to him by God, not man or himself. And then we'll see who's a coward and who's bold. Paul was more than ready and able to go toe-to-toe with his critics. And there would be no sugar-coated words by Paul. And his words would come with power. Don't let them make the mistake of thinking that Paul's actions could be considered works of his flesh. The word confidence here doesn't refer to an assurance based on something that was outward. You know, like maybe he was big and he was strong and he was taller and bigger than everybody else. It wasn't some outward confidence. It refers to assurance from within. Paul knew that he was writing under the leading of the Holy Spirit. He knew that he was not grieving the Holy Spirit. He knew that he was right, and he knew who was wrong. And his confidence that should have shaken the worldly carnal confidence of those that were coming against him. So Paul offered the peace pipe to his enemies. And he came with meekness, and he came with the gentleness of Jesus, but they better not underestimate him. Jesus was meek and gentle, but he didn't give, uh, he, it didn't keep him from pouring out curses on his enemies, nor from handing Jerusalem over to destruction. It was the same with the Apostle Paul. Meekness and gentleness now turns to confrontation. Look at verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, that is in this body, he says, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't war with this body. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The word flesh here is used in a couple of ways. First, Paul was a man of flesh. All right. He wasn't perfect, but he didn't war according to the flesh he wasn't led by the flesh he wasn't driven by his carnal flesh paul wasn't going to depend upon his flesh he wasn't going to depend upon his wisdom or his personality or his emotions or his talents he wasn't going to depend upon any of those things to carry out the will of god now his critics thought for sure it was going to be a battle of wits his and theirs they His critics were pretty sure they could intimidate Paul. Even when it came to that, a a, a battle of the wits. Paul said, hey, I won't be using those kind of weapons. You don't win people to Christ over arguments. It's through the word of God and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I won't be using carnal weapons. We're not going to have a debate. And you see, debates can go on forever. And if somebody wants to debate you or to tell you what you're not doing right in Christ, and get, you know, we should listen to a point until it gets unscriptural. But the Bible says that we're not to get, up, to get caught up in vain arguments. They only cause strife. So if you disagree with me, and I disagree with you, and, and we're both, you know, going to stand our ground that's where it should stop because vain vain arguments just generate strife and we need to go our separate ways 
Plain and simple. He was set free. Paul was set free by his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was sure of his confidence. He was sure and he was confident of the indwelling, filling, and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now he describes the kind of weapons that he used regularly in all spiritual battles. And Paul recognized something that his, that his critics just couldn't grasp. And that was that the battle was purely spiritual in nature and scope. And that's what we... We are fighting a spiritual battle, church. And Paul said the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. In other words, our weapons are totally opposite of our nature. That is the things that we think we should do to fight the enemy. Things that I should do, maybe, you know, with my body or, or, or things that I can think of what to do. And, and it's not about what, how I fight this, 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 this spiritual warfare in my flesh, but with the power of God. Our weapons are totally opposite of our nature. Our weapons are of a spiritual nature. Number one, the Word of God. The Word of God is one of our spiritual weapons. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And you know what? Every debate, argument, or spiritual battle is settled through the Word of God. Settled through the Word of God. Prayer, another weapon of our warfare. Prayer is a spiritual weapon. Fasting is a spiritual weapon. And then Paul lists all of the Christian armor in Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. And Paul describes our weapons as mighty in God. We need to remember that, not mighty in man, not mighty in self. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice that. Mighty in God, strong in the Lord, power of his might. It's in him. They're used, they're used these, these, these weapons are used by the Holy Spirit. These resources are used by the Holy Spirit to do God's work. And they're mighty, he said, notice, for pulling down strongholds. Pulling down means to demolish, destroy, overthrow. Strongholds means fortresses, fortifications. Satan is the one who builds these strongholds, strongholds of pride, prejudice, passion, bitterness, and anger in men's hearts. Satan involves himself in human life and society. He's building strongholds today in churches, in schools, and in different godly institutions. We see what's happening in our schools today. This, this wokeness, this progressiveness, this, this, this foolishness, indoctrinating our children. With garbage, instead of teaching them, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, socializing them, changing them, or trying to, to the worldly ways and the worldly standards. That's Satan's work. And the world's falling into it, and they're believing it, and they're, they're being pressured to give in. 
And if you don't, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you're, you're, you're every name under the book, just like these critics are with Paul. Satan involves himself in all of these things, and he's building these strongholds. He has principalities, and he has powers, and he has rulers of this world, and he has wicked spirits in high places to enforce his will. All these people supporting this stuff, they're, you, they're his workers, they're his little minions that are carrying out his will. He has unlimited armies of evil spirits to oppose and to obstruct and to oppress. Paul's Corinthian enemies, man, they were embedded in the church. They were entrenched in these strongholds. Hey, Satan loves to go to church. Remember in the, in the Gospels, Jesus would go into the synagogues and, and there would be a man in there was possessed by the devil. Hey, Satan loves to go to church. And we need to remember that. Paul's enemies were embedded in the church. They were entrenched in these strongholds. They thought that they were invincible. They had their letters of endorsement. Well, you know, I'm so-and-so. I I have this ministry, and I do this, and I do that, and I've been recommended by so-and-so and such and such. So what? If it's not God's commendation, it's only belongs. It's man's commendation. He had letters of endorsement signed by men who had impressive names and impressive credentials. They had their clever arguments. All the while, they were Satan's human allies. And their purpose was to obstruct the truth and the work of God and to pervert the truth of the gospel by substituting it with legalistic teaching. They were doing everything in their power to destroy Paul's influence. But they didn't take into account what kind of man Paul was, what kind of man that they were dealing with, and the kind of man that they were challenging to a fight. And then Paul begins to use his weapons. Look at verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Casting down arguments means anti-God viewpoints and there are so many anti-God viewpoints in the world this morning Paul is speaking of the spiritual warfare that he's engaged in in preaching the gospel and that's why we're hearing more and more attacks on the word of God and Christianity and God in the church because Satan is on 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 the attack right now more than ever before, because Jesus is coming back soon. Now, this verse could be lifted out of its context and used to speak of an individual warfare. You know, casting down these strongholds on my own unholy thoughts. But the context of the verse is the battle of human philosophy and reasoning against the gospel. It's, the, it, it's man's thinking, it's, it's man's idea about his thoughts about the gospel, against the gospel. Human thinking that would exalt itself against gospel revelation. It's heavenly revelation or human reasoning, what's being talked about here, these, these, these uh, casting down these arguments. Anti God viewpoints. And Paul says he'll defeat 
human reasoning with the power of the gospel. And that's the weapon. Verse 6. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And Paul would discipline those in the church who remain disobedient. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Paul asks, do you just look at the outward? That's a huge mistake. We know over in 1 Samuel, God said he, he, he didn't look at the outward, he looked at the heart. It's easy to over or underestimate a person if we go only by their outward appearance. Paul's critics were like a lot of people. The way they ruled people, they judged people was by their outward appearance, like they were doing Paul. They judged them by their outward appearance. They didn't take into consideration the inner attributes in judging Paul. Verse 7 again, it says, If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. The evaluation of Paul's genuineness as a believer was being judged unfairly. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ. The critics of Paul claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. The fairness about our professions of faith. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Evaluating Paul's profession of faith, it wasn't done fairly. And Paul wants his critics to evaluate his profession on the same basis they evaluate their own profession. The criteria that they use to claim salvation will also say that Paul is a convert of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Paul's enemies challenged Paul's apostolic authority. And he responds to their challenge here. Paul's authority was that of an apostle. His authority was in both the power to rule and in the power to enforce his authority. Given to him by God. The critics would especially oppose his authority just as a rebellious church, as, as rebellious church members oppose giving the pastor sometimes any authority to lead the church. And many times that's a, lot of, that's a problem with a congregational-led church. They're leading the pastor instead of the Holy Spirit. They will vote him out because they don't like what he's doing. They'll vote him out because they want something that, that he doesn't want. Because it's not biblical. The pastor is to be led by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But again, they were, they were wanting Paul to, to, to follow their ways. Paul says that even if he spoke more about his authority, he wouldn't be ashamed because his claim of authority was legitimate and it could be validated. But the rebels, they always find it hard to submit to spiritual authority. People didn't, uh, Paul didn't say that it was his own authority. 
He didn't say, man gave me this authority. Man gave me this position. Or a committee of men gave me this position. Nobody can give you that position. Paul was humble about his authority. And he didn't stress it as much as he could have. And authority and position are not for personal exaltation. It's not to lift you up. It's not to make you famous or noticeable or a celebrity in the church. Authority and position are to benefit other people. And anyone who has authority, whether in church or government or business, needs to learn that authority is given to help in the overall work and everything that you do. Paul said his authority was given for edification. That means for building up, not yourself, for building up others. It's for building up others. His authority was given for the good of the people. And he must use his authority for that purpose, for the good of the people. Because using your authority for any other purpose is to abuse that authority. Verses 9 and 10. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Paul doesn't want his letters to be bold and terrifying and then turn out to be weak among them. In other words, he doesn't write all, they want to write all these tough words and talk tough and everything, and then when he's in front of them, you know, he, he's weak before them. He doesn't want that to happen. When people heard that Paul, when people, I'm sorry, when people heard Paul, it was clear to them that he wasn't preaching to them under his own physical strength or by his own eloquence or his own personal charm. It was obvious that his strength was not coming from himself but from the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters... When we are absent, such will also be de- indeed uh, when we are present. In other words, whatever I tell you in this letter is what you're going to see when I'm with you in person. Paul is disputing the accusation, and he says he will be the same in person as he is in the letters that he writes to them. This isn't just a defense against the accusation. It's a warning. He's not, he's not in other words, this letter is not defending himself. It's warning them. It's warning them about what they're doing it's about his future behavior how he's going to be how he's going to act when he's with them verse 12 for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves notice are not wise they're not wise you see the judaizers the legalists the so-called knowledgeable ones, oh, they were great on sizing up their ministry because they were measuring it by themselves, according to each other, and by their works that they were doing. Because, you see, a religion of outward activities, it's a lot easier to measure than one of inner transformation. Because we can't see what's going on on the inside of a person. But, you know, we judge a lot of things by all the activity on the outside. 
And it would be really amazing to know what God thinks about a lot of our activity. A lot of churches, oh, you guys are really busy, man. You're, but you know what? You're, you're not busy about my business. You're just busy. Just busy. So, again, sometimes those who are growing the most feel like they're less than the least. You see, one who can see spiritual growth is the Lord in a believer's heart. He sees our spiritual growth. In a sense, the Judaizers, the legalists, they belong to their own special group. And there's a lot of those. We're the ones who know. We're the ones who have been enlightened. Come to our church and you'll learn the right way. It's like these Judaizers. They belong to their own special group. They set up their own standards. They set up their own ideas. And they measured everybody by the way they did things and by the way they thought. So those that were part of that group, they were successful. But if you were outside of that group, you're a failure. Paul was one of the outsiders to them. So to his critics, he was looked at as a failure. Unfortunately, they didn't measure themselves by Jesus Christ. You want to measure yourself by somebody else, you'll always come out on top. You'll always come out on top. But if you measure yourself by Jesus Christ, you got a long way to go. I got a long way to go. He's the standard. He's the, he's the measuring rod. And if I measure myself against Christ, I will always come out short. If they would have measured them, if, if Paul's critics would have measured themselves by that standard of Jesus Christ, that would have made a difference. As Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. The Corinthians... The Corinthian believer's complaint was that Paul would not come to see them. They said, Paul, you just spend so much time with everybody else, but you won't come to Corinth to spend time with us. A lot of Christians will criticize their pastor because he doesn't spend time visiting with them. They want more and more of his time. But when a pastor spends this time stroking and pampering people, he's wasting the Lord's time. Again, depending on the situation. He needs time to spend his, he needs to spend his time with those who really need it. He also needs to spend time in the word of God in prayer, Acts 6.4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. Verses 14 through 16. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came <clears throat> with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged to you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's uh, sphere, uh, sphere of acknowledgement." Paul says, you know, he says, 
We're not reaching beyond these boundaries when we claim authority over you as if we'd never visited you. He said, we were the first to travel all the way to Corinth with the good news for you guys. He said, nor do we boast and take credit for the work somebody else has done with you. He says, we hope that your faith will grow. Notice, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. In other words, he shared the gospel with them. He got the church started. He teaches them the word of God. And then he moves on in hopes that the church will take the word of God out. You see, it's your duty as the church to take the word of God out. It's not the pastor and the leaders. We're here to teach what you learn. Now you take out and you extend the gospel. You extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God. Paul says, I do that so that I can move on now to new territories. I go to places where other people aren't, where others aren't working. He says, and then there will be no boasting of, uh, there will be no question about us boasting about our work done in somebody else's, else's territory. He tells them, okay, I'm not, coming, I'm not coming to be a pastor of a church. He says, I've been called to be a missionary. And after he'd start a work, Paul would move on. He'd stay, he'd establish it, he'd get the leaders, he'd get everybody set and, and teach them, and then he'd move on. Now, church, you do what you need to do. He was always moving out to a new territory. He never built on another man's foundation. And so many churches, you see them one every other block. Instead of moving to where... There's nothing going on. Well, we've seen it over and over again. You know, a, a church starts somewhere, and then, well, a, a, a church that's been established there for a long time, and then a new church comes in down the street. They come and they put flyers on your windshield. Hey, come to our church. We just started a new church. Here's our service time. Building on another man's foundation. Hey, if God called you to start the church and God's going to fill the church God's going to do the work when it's all said and done look at verse 17 but he who glories let him glory in the Lord when it's all said and done it's God who's to be praised not the ministers not the pastors God is the one who has done the work. He's the one who has worked in the people's hearts. He's the one who has given the ministers their abilities and their successes. Let's close with verse 18. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commands. This is so right on. We may commend ourselves. Pat ourselves on the back. Oh, look what I've done. Look what I built, like King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> or others. Oh, you've done a great job. You've done the, you know, uh, you know what? You may have done all this stuff. You, again, it, it may all look like, wow, what a work, what a success. But you may still not have the commendation of God. See, how does God approve our work? By testing it. By testing it. 
God allows difficulties to come to local churches in order that the work might be tested and approved. Do you hand in your resignation when things get tough? Do you run when the work gets hard? The word approve here in verse 18 means to approve by testing. And there is a future testing at the judgment seat of Christ that we know about, 1 Corinthians 3.10. But there's also a testing now of the work that we do. Over the years, ministries are tested by financial problems, by false doctrine. People coming into the church and trying to tell you that this is wrong or you should do this and and you're not doing this right. Well, the Bible says, yeah, but. No, No, yeah, buts. God's word says, therefore, I will do what God's word says. We see, we, we see churches tested by, by, by the rise of proud leaders. Oh, they want to lead over you. They want to, they you know, lord over you. They want to run the church. And then the challenge of change. People don't like change. Lord leads the, the, the pastor, the leader, to, to do a certain... Oh, no, no, no. We, we, no. This is the way we've done it for years. Well, and some of the churches have fallen apart and they've almost died because the work was not spiritual. Other ministries have grown because of the trials, and that's what we should do, grow through trials. They've become purer. They've become stronger. And through it all, God was glorified, and that's the bottom line. God is glorified. The important thing is that we, are, that we are where God wants us to be and that we're doing what God wants us to do that he might be glorified. Motive. Motive for what I do is the key. Because the day I stand before God, he's not going to judge me Oh, for my sins, first of all, because Jesus was judged for my sins. But I'm going to stand before him, and, he, and, and he's not going to say, hey, man, your church was little. You know, you, you didn't have a lot of this or a lot of that. You only had 100 people. He's not going he's, he's to talk to me. He says, did you do what I called you to do? I love that. So whether you have 100 or 10,000 in the congregation, the bottom line is, did you do what I call, did you feed my sheep? And I love the story about the young pastor who was just starting out. He just got out of seminary, and he's starting his church, and he was, you know, he just figured he was going to have this huge church right away. And he had about 100 people. And down A few miles away, there was Charles Spurgeon with thousands of people. And he went to see Pastor Spurgeon one day and he asked him, you know, how did did you, you know, how many, how did you get all of these people? He said, I want a church just like this with with a lot of people. And Spurgeon asked him, well, how many is in your congregation? And he goes, I have only about 100. He goes, 
That'll be enough to be judged for. You see, whether it's one or 10,000, did you feed that one the gospel? Did you feed that 10,000? You know, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, a steward of the Lord is to be found faithful, not eloquent, not brilliant, not educated. Not that those things are wrong, but that's not what he's going to base your faithfulness on. Did you do, what was your motivation? Did you do it because you love me? Or did you do it because you wanted a big congregation and you wanted to be famous? Whose commendation do you want when you stand before him? Man's or God's? Father, we thank you so much for this chapter and your word, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, your grace. Father, help us to be motivated by your love, God. Help us to be motivated by our salvation because you gave it to us, Lord. You gave so much that we might be saved, Lord. And we thank you for that, God. And Lord, let us, let us, let us soak in your word of God that we may give it to others, God. That we may, Father, be, uh, be an army, soldiers of Christ, to help bring down, pull down those strongholds, Lord. Father, to pull down every vain argument. All those anti-God viewpoints, Lord. Father, help us to be what we've been called to be, lights in a dark world. And help us to be moved by your spirit. Nothing else. You're our God, you're our guide. Lead us into all truth, God, everything that we do. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you take care of us, God. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.